Our sermon this morning is on Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. So, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapters 16 through 21. We're going to cover a couple different passages throughout that uh, text there. We've been on Abraham for a couple of weeks. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant uh, two weeks ago. We looked at how God promised to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. We looked at Abraham and Sarah last week and kind of looked at some of their, frankly, their, their sin and folly, just some of the, the, the mistakes that they made along the, along the way. And today we're going to look at uh, just further developments in their story and kind of incorporate Hagar and Ishmael into it and kind of see their story. So I'm going to pray because we got quite a bit of, uh, of real estate to cover. So I'm not going to read it all up front. I'm going to pray and then we're just going to work through the, the better part of Genesis 16 and 21 respectively. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we just ask you to speak to us through your word. God, we acknowledge that apart from your word, your revelation, Lord, that we cannot know you, we can't, we can't will ourselves, we can't manufacture uh, spiritual insight, even if we uh, would try. And so, Lord, we ask you to speak to us and help us and open our eyes to see, uh, to see you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, starting in Genesis 16, verse 1. Now, Sarai, I might use the word Sarai and Sarah interchangeably, same with Abram and Abraham. So just uh, don't, you know, just, just disregard that if, if that happens, because their names are going to change throughout the course of our our text, but uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So if you'll remember, uh, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him uh, out of Babylon. Sarah is 10 years younger, so she was 65, and so 10 years have gone by at this point. So they are 85 and 75, respectively, and Sarah has wanted to have kids for her whole life, right? She's, she's wanted to have, have kids, been hoping that she could have kids, and she wasn't able to have children. When she was in childbearing years, right, all of her friends had kids, all of her friends grew up, and their kids had, had kids, and so now, you know, uh, 75, you know, long, painful uh, years, and finally, you know, uh, it looks like uh, there, something's about something's about to give here, right? Ten years ago, she's 65. God says, you're going to have a child. And she's probably thinking, that's ridiculous. No, I'm not, because I'm too old, and I, I didn't even have kids when I was not too old. So year after year after year after year, right? From 65, age 65, when this promise comes that I'm going to make you into a great nation, you're going to have children all the way till 75. At this point, she seems to have... Uh, either forgotten that God made that promise at all, or just completely uh, disregarded it and, and disbelieved uh, it. And so Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands, right? God, I'm, I uh, am sure that you're able to bring your promises to pass, but I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you some help because it looks like maybe you've forgotten. So, so she took, uh, she had a female, female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, if we remember, uh, Abraham and Sarah were kind of gifted all of these things when they were in Egypt from Pharaoh, uh, basically because Abraham sent Sarah to go sleep with Pharaoh, um, and then Pharaoh got sick, and Pharaoh was like, Abraham, what's happening? Why am I getting sick? And he's like, oh, it's because uh, she's not my sister. Like I said, she's my wife. And he's like, okay, well, don't do that again. And, you know, 
go wherever you want. And, and he, gives, he gives Abraham and Sarah a bunch of stuff, uh, among which are, are female servants, presumably of which one is Hagar. Verse 2, And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So go into my servant that it, that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Abraham, you're, you're 85, I'm 75, my, you know, personal assistant, is, as it were, is 28. So, so you go sleep with her, get her pregnant, and then when her son is born, we'll adopt him as our own and kind of everything will be, will be back on, on track. Which, to be honest, is, is a little bit eerily reminiscent. Right? Abraham, when he got to Egypt says, hey, I'm pretty sure Pharaoh is going to see you, want to be with you. He's going to have me killed so that he can be with you. So why don't you just go uh, be with him? Go, go sleep with, with Pharaoh um, so that I won't die. And so, so Abraham's first thought whenever there's a bump in the road, whenever there's, there's a, an issue, a problem is, why don't I just get my wife to sleep with someone else other than me? And now Sarah has the same impulse Right? She, she's thinking, God promised us a kid. We haven't had a kid. We're getting older. I don't know if we're ever going to have a kid. So why don't I just tell Abraham to go uh, sleep with someone other than me? And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So Abraham, you know, he's like, no, I don't know, Sarah. I'm not sure that that... Okay, if you think I should, then maybe, maybe I'll go... You know, like Abraham has every opportunity here to say no... We're not going to do that, right? We already made that mistake once when I sent you to be with Pharaoh and it turned out very badly for us. Besides, you and I are in covenant relationship together. And so uh, God intended for our marriage to be monogamous, for us to be faithful. I'm not going to go sleep with another woman. Besides, God's reputation is at stake here. God promised us that we would have children. It's, it's, a, it's a promise. It's a covenant that he made to us. And so uh, if we kind of short-circuit that promise and we go uh, seek to you know, accomplish God's promises on our own in another way, then it's going to call God's reputation into question. It's going to make it look like God was not able to accomplish what he promised that he... I mean, God... God for all we know, God chose us on purpose, knowing that we were old, knowing that you, you know, experienced infertility when you were younger, knowing that that would make it all the less likely that we could ever have kids, knowing that it would be all the more glory for God if and when we eventually did have kids. Abraham could have said all that, didn't say any of that. Instead, he just says, sure, like, you know, you're, you're the boss. I'm going to listen to your voice. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her uh, to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So, so and this is interesting. So, so gave her to Abram as a wife. So uh, it wasn't just a, I mean, this is the same word that's used when it's referring to Sarah as the wife of, of Abraham. So apparently uh, Abraham actually married Hagar. It's a little bit ambiguous because later in Genesis 25, it refers to Sarah as Abraham's wife, singular, and it refers to Hagar uh, as Abraham's concubine. So uh, presumably, Abraham's relationship with Hagar was something more than a transaction, like a surrogate pregnancy, uh, but something less than like a full-on marriage like he has with with Sarah. So it's, it's almost like Abraham has his wife, Sarah, and then a girlfriend, Hagar. Last, last time we saw a man with two wives in the Bible, his name was Lamech. We met him in Genesis chapter 4. He's not a good guy. 
He's violent. He's, he, he murdered a man, and then he bragged about murdering a man. He threatened his wives. He's mocking God. He's scoffing at God. Lamech is not a good guy in whose footsteps to follow. And that's kind of the way that Abraham is, is headed here. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. So Hagar right away gets pregnant. There was any doubt as to why they weren't able to have kids before. It becomes very clear, right? Like she, Abraham had been sleeping with Sarah for decades. She wasn't getting pregnant. He sleeps with Hagar presumably once. Uh, and she gets pregnant right away. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, on Sarah. So, you know, Hagar... Right. Hagar's been working for Sarah for years, 10 years at this point, probably maybe more. And, uh, you know, doing her, running her errands, doing her laundry, fixing her meals, cleaning up after her. And just like day by day, it seems like maybe Hagar has become more and more annoyed with this situation that they have. Right. She, you know, she's probably thinking, who is Sarah? Like, who is Sarah and what makes her, why should I do what Sarah says? Right? Why shouldn't? Why can't I be the wife and Sarah be the servant? Right? I mean, I if if the the wifely duties are to you know like please the husband and give children to the husband, right? Which is kind of how they understood that at, at this time, right? Like I'm like Sarah is old. I'm young. Sarah is. I mean, I'm I'm more attractive than her. I am fertile. I'm able to like, and I I've now I've gotten pregnant. So now I have leverage, right? Now the child that Abraham wants so bad is growing in my, in my womb. And so she kind of, you know, takes advantage of this situation and starts to, um, you know, look on, look on Sarah with contempt, starts to disobey her, roll her eyes whenever she asks her to do anything, right? Doesn't work, doesn't want to do it. So we have the, we have this toxic, I mean, every, every time we meet a new character and we see their behavior kind of bubble up to the surface, it just, we realize that it's more and more toxic, right? Abraham is flawed, constantly sending his wife to go sleep with other uh, men. He's willingly sleeping with other women. Sarah is flawed. She laughs in God's uh, face, right? Uh, tries to get her husband to go sleep with other women. Hagar is flawed. I mean, Hagar is a victim, to be sure, but she also is is not without her flaws, right? She sees this opportunity to kind of drive a wedge between Abraham and Sarah and to insert herself in and to say, I want to, to unseat. I want to usurp Sarah as the, the matriarch of the house, the, the, the favored wife of the house. I want to be in that spot. And she tries to kind of force her way in. Verse 5, Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong this is great. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So, so Sarah is like, look, this is your fault, right? It, sure, maybe I came to you with this with this scheme, this plan for you to sleep with Hagar, and to, so that we could have a child through her. But, but like, I'm, I'm kind of rewriting history here. I'm the victim. You know, you, you, have, you have sinned against me. Now my assistant is not obeying, right? She's mouthing, mouthing off and she's not, you know, being a, you know, not, not being a, not, not working well for me. And it's your fault. She's looking for someone to blame. Verse 6. And Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to you as, do to her as you please. So Abram says, look, I, I just did what you told me. 
right? You told me to sleep with Hagar. I slept with Hagar. We had a kid. That, that was the goal in the first place anyway. It's not my fault that she is kind of rebelling against you, making your life difficult now. If you don't like the situation, then fix it. Hagar works for you, not the other, not the other way around. So Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, and she fled from her. So Sarah kind of, you know, returns like for like, right? If, if Hagar's being catty, if Hagar's being disrespectful, if Hagar's being passive-aggressive, Sarah gives it right back to her, starts to, to micromanage, starts to be a really cruel boss, uh, you know, might, might even be, uh, you know, using physical violence in some, some capacity, and Hagar leaves. I'd rather just take my chances out in the world, you know, with my unborn child than, than stay here and kind of endure this kind of uh, abuse. One author, who is actually a single mom herself, one author uh, writes, uh, Consider the plight of Hagar, the single mother. She was a foreign servant in a strange land and in a culture with a low view of women. Now she's pregnant and alone, and Hagar was as vulnerable and as insignificant as a person could possibly be. That's Hagar, stuck in the wilderness. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. Now, this is the first mention that we see in the Bible of the angel of the Lord. And we see him kind of over and over. It's kind of an interesting character to study in the Bible. There's tons of mentions in the Bible of an angel of the Lord without the definite article, the. There's tons of mentions uh, in the Bible of angels, plural, uh, of, of the Lord, angelic beings. Right? It's very clear that they're created by God. They're distinct from humanity, uh, they, but they're also distinct from God. They kind of have their own category, their own purpose to serve as messengers of God. The word angel in both Greek and Hebrew means uh, messenger. And sometimes these angels get confused with God, and whenever that happens, they're like, whoa, don't... In, in, in fact, uh, the Apostle John, who I mean, knew Jesus, and, and uh, if anyone would, you know, would be able to distinguish an angel from God, it would be John. He twice confuses an angel for God and falls down to worship them in Revelation 19 and Revelation 21. And both times they say... You must not do that. I am not God. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Instead of worshiping me, worship God. Angels say that as if on cue every time anyone tries to worship them. All of the angels, that is, except the angel of the Lord. Right? Several times throughout the Old Testament, uh, you know, he is... He refers to himself kind of with this divine authority. He speaks uh, as if he is God. Uh, the people speaking to him, like Hagar in a minute here, speak to him as if he is God. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't uh, rebuke them. See him in Genesis 22. Uh, next week we'll look with Abraham and Isaac. Exodus chapter 3, Moses and the burning bush. Numbers 22 with Balaam. Uh, Judges chapter 6, when Gideon is called to lead God's people. Uh, tons of places in, in the Old Testament. Here's what's interesting. We don't see the angel of the Lord at all anymore once Jesus comes at the incarnation in the New Testament. No, no references to the definite article, the angel of the Lord, which has led a lot of theologians to, to basically conclude, I think rightly, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of on, this would be my, my take on it, that the angel of the Lord is um, not an angel, uh, but instead it's, it's God himself appearing in human form. 
Or rather, it's like a pre-incarnate manifestation of uh, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. So it's, it's God appearing as a man. He refers to himself as being distinct from the Father, but he also refers to himself with these divine attributes and with, and, you know, having, having union with the, this is how John, this is how Jesus in John chapter 8, uh, says some, says things like, uh, before Abraham was ever alive, before he was even born, I am. I existed before Abraham. I have always been God in the form of a man. And and that's kind of, I've always existed, still do exist. And I think that this angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. So verse 8, the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answers, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Right? Sarai's been harsh and, and abusive and, and I figured it would be better to be anywhere other than there with her. In verse 9, the Lord said to her, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Right? Hagar, it's not safe out here. You are pregnant. You are about to be a mother of a newborn baby. Right? You, what you don't, right, what, what you think that you need more than anything else is... Autonomy, freedom from Sarai, right? Space, some elbow room to do what you want with your life and not have someone looking over your shoulder and telling you what to do. That's what you think you need more than anything else. What you really need more than anything else is a a home, a family, a place to sleep, a father for your son, right? That's more important than the autonomy that you seem to, to want so much. So go back to Abraham and Sarah. Even if Sarah's mean, be kind to her, be humble, submit to her, be a good employee, be a good servant. Don't treat her with contempt. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Right, so, so Hagar, it's not. I, I already promised that I'm going to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation, and I'm going to bless the world through them. And I've already, I've already told Abraham that that promise is going to come through Isaac, right? Through through a covenant son of the promise that I'm going to give to his barren wife Sarah. But that doesn't change the fact that that you're like you're now in, you're in this with with us. So, so I am promising you, Hagar, that I am going to bless you. I am going to give you more offspring than you can count. As, as history unfolds, uh, you know, Ishmael does become the father of his own people, uh, the Arabic people. They trace their lineage back to Abraham through uh, Ishmael. You know, the Islamic faith traces their, their lineage. It kind of understands Ishmael to be one of the forefathers of their, of their faith, one of their patriarchs. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you and behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He shall be the, be the, I'm sorry, wait, that's, that's Genesis chapter 17. We're looking at, um, yeah, so later in Genesis 17, God kind of gives more information about, uh, Ishmael. He says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you behold, I have blessed you. I will make him a fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be the father of 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So, so God says to Hagar, I'm going to bless your son. I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to preserve him and I'm going to give him 12 sons of his own. And they're going to become a great nation. Verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So, so the name Ishmael actually literally means God listens, or God hears, or God hears me. So she says, so God says, you're going to call your son God hears because I have heard you. I have listened to you. I care about you. So this, I mean, among other things, I mean, one, one thing that this text does is help us understand God's promises to Abraham and how God promises to bless those who are in Abraham and who come from Abraham. But this text also speaks to, uh, frankly, just relationships today between Christians and uh, people of the Islamic faith, right? This text seems to indicate that God loves Hagar, loves Ishmael, cares about them, does not cast them aside, is, is not indifferent to what they're experiencing because he values them. Which one, one readily apparent application would be that if you're a Christian, it's not okay to, you know, it's not okay to hate Muslims or be prejudiced or racist against Muslims, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of what country you live in and what relationship that country may or may not have with other countries that are predominantly uh, Islamic. I've, I've heard a lot of unflattering things spoken about Muslim people. I've heard a lot of it spoken from people who identify as Christians. This text seems to say that that's inappropriate. I had, I had one person I was talking about this sermon. And he, he asked me, why are you going to preach a sermon on Ishmael? Because he is, like, he's not our guy. He's not on our team. Right? Like, preach a sermon about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the line of the covenant that, that comes to fruition in Christ, which is where we kind of fall as Christians. But don't preach a sermon on Ishmael. But the, the name Ishmael itself is a reminder that God hears and cares about Hagar and about Ishmael and about the descendants of Ishmael, about the Arabic people, Muslim people today. There's a lot to be concerned about with the Islamic faith, right? Uh, they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the gospel. So you can't, you can't be saved and reconciled to God through the Islamic faith. But God loves Muslims. God loved Ishmael. He cared about Ishmael. He heard Ishmael. And he loves the descendants of Ishmael, which today are the, the Muslim people. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord. Hagar is the first person in the Bible who, who, gives, who names God, right? Who, who kind of gives God a name specifically for the purpose of declaring an attribute of God. She called to the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen the one who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. But here, Lahai Roi means the well where the living God has seen me. So God says, you're going to name your kid Ishmael because I have heard you. I'm listening to you. I care about you. You matter to me. And she affirms that. She reiterates it and says, yes, you have heard me. Yes, you do see me. Yes, you are watching over me. You're looking after me. Same author that I quoted before says, what does it mean that Hagar was seen by God. Well, to be seen is to be valued. It's to be accounted for and respected as an individual who bears the image of her creator. Creator Hagar had never truly been seen by another person. 
Her enslavers saw her as the spoils of conflict. Abraham and Sarai saw her as an incubator for the promised child. But God saw Hagar. And he heard her. And he knew her. And he understood her history. And he spoke directly to her greatest fears by providing for her needs and giving her a hopeful future. And he did all this while she was seated next to a well. Just like another disgraced woman that Jesus would one day meet with living water in John chapter 4. If you're a single mother, if you're uh, vulnerable, if you've been cast out by the world, God sees you. He's deeply concerned about what has happened to you and what will happen to you. He knows the burdens that you carry. He knows that you feel, uh, he knows that you feel like you're carrying them alone. Your daily circumstances, like Hagar's, may look bleak, but in Christ you are seated right next to a bottomless well of living water, and he invites you to drink deeply of them and to trust in him. Verse 15, And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, who Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So that's the family now. Abram. His wife, Sarah, still barren, still can't conceive. His girlfriend, Hagar, her son, Ishmael. And that's kind of the way that things go for another 13 years. 13 more years. Sarah is still praying for and hoping for a child. Still is not able to have one. I mean, in Genesis 17 uh, through 18, God actually comes to Abraham, reiterates his promises again. I'm going to give you a child through Sarah, not through, not through Hagar. And Abraham's like, don't even worry about it. We're fine. Like, just let's just go with Ishmael from Hagar. We're good if you are. Let's just move on. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. And in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, it's exactly what happens. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So here are the long-awaited promises of God. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. 25 years ago, God made this promise to them, and finally, it's coming to pass. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to Sarah who bore him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. The name Isaac means laughter. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Even still, I I have borne him a son in his old age. The, the, the theme of laughter is kind of a recurring theme in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. Um, in Genesis 17, God says he's going to give Abraham a son. Abraham laughs. It's like a laugh of dismissal. <laughs> that's ridiculous. There's no way that's going to happen. You must be thinking of someone else. That's hilarious. Kind of dismisses it outright. And God says, I mean, essentially says, you, you think it's funny? Like you like laughing? Well, let's just name the kid laughing. Let's name the kid laughter and we'll see who's laughing then. Genesis chapter 18, uh, God says the same thing. Now, now Sarah hears it out. You're, Sarah's going to have a son. She laughs. She dismisses it. She thinks it's incredulous. She doesn't believe God's word. She's laughing and dismissing God's word as ridiculous, just like, like Abraham. But now, Isaac is born, and now she's laughing not out of incredulity, not out of disbelief, not out of that's ridiculous, but she's laughing out of 
un, you know, unbridled, like uncontainable joy. I'm so happy that I have this son that I've wanted my whole life. I'm 90 and I'm laughing because I'm so happy that I have this child. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a feast, made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. So he probably would have been somewhere between one and three years old. And, um, you know, they're going to celebrate this occasion of Isaac moving from infancy into childhood. Meanwhile, Ishmael was about 14 years old when Isaac was born. So he's probably about 16 years old now. Verse 9, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, and he was laughing. Here it is again, the recurring theme of laughter. But this isn't the laughter of Abraham and Sarah. Dismissal, that's ridiculous, I don't believe it. It's not the laughter of Abraham, uh, it's not the laughter of Sarah when Isaac is born, the laughter of joy and excitement, and I'm so thrilled at what's happening. This is the laughter of scorn, the laughter of derision, the laughter of mockery. Right, the laughter of bullying. Uh, Galatians chapter four says that Isaac uh, wasn't just laughing. It says that Ishmael wasn't just laughing at Isaac. Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. So maybe he's bullying him, or picking on him, or you know, being physically, uh, you know, rough or, or violent with him. Verse ten. So Sarah says to Abraham, "Cast this slave woman with her son out." For the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. So Sarah kind of comes to the defense of her little baby boy Isaac. I'm tired of Ishmael trying to cut into our family, drive a wedge between me and Abraham, between my son and his father. I'm tired of competing with Hagar for the attention and affection of Abraham. I'm tired of my son competing with Ishmael for the attention and affection of his father. I want him out of here. Verse 11, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his... So Abraham still loves Ishmael, right? It's his son. He, he cared, I mean, he, he, uh, his first loyalty is to Sarah over and, over and against Hagar, but he still loves Ishmael. The kid shares his DNA. He's very uh, important to him. He wants Ishmael to have a father that can raise him and look after him. So Sarah's request makes Abraham sad. Verse 12, then God says to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God says, I'll take care of Ishmael. You don't need to keep all these plates spinning at the same time, making sure that that you're taking care of Hagar and Ishmael, but that you're not upsetting uh, Sarah and and Isaac. Uh, So he says, basically, entrust your girlfriend, as it were, Hagar, and your, your son with her to me, and I'll take care of them. I will provide for them. You look after Sarah. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away and she departed and wandered in the wilderness to Beersheba. So here's Hagar, probably in her forties. Here's Ishmael. He's about 16 and Abraham gives them a bottle of water and a loaf of bread and sends them out into the desert and says, have a nice life. Good, good luck with, with everything from here on out. Abraham is a man of means, probably be a millionaire today. 
tons of stuff, tons of employees, tons of property. He gives them a loaf of bread, a bottle of water, and says, good luck. Hopefully, you know, hopefully you, you're, you'll have a tough time getting remarried, Hagar, because no one wants to marry a single mother, uh, but, but you can't stay here. So he sends them out into the wilderness. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. So their provisions run out, sun's beating down. No people in sight, no buildings, no, you know, dwellings in sight, no source of water in sight. And so Hagar realizes that they are just about to die. Verse 16, then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. Ishmael's about to die. I'm about to die. That's inevitable. That's unavoidable. At least if we're going to die, let's not... At least if my son's going to die, I don't want him to watch his mother die right in front of him first. Or at least if I'm going to die, I don't want to die right after watching my son die right in front of my eyes. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and she wept. Verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Here's the reiterating the He's reiterating uh, his promise that he already made back in chapter 16. I am going to take care of your son. I'm going to make him into a great nation. I know you don't have any food. I know you don't have any water. I know it looks like you're going to die. But you know what else? Like, you know what else looked unlikely? Sarah having a kid. Sarah couldn't conceive. Sarah was old, and now she's back at home right now, nursing her child, playing with her child. Because I keep my promises even when it looks like I can't, even when they appear to be impossible. Remember when I told you that I was going to make your offspring into a great nation, I'm still going to keep that promise today. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Ishmael means God hears me. Bir Lahai Roi means the living God has seen me. God draws near to Hagar. He sees her and hears her and meets her and provides for her and takes care of her needs. Same author, Anna Mead Harris, says, uh, God's tender care for this mistreated mother and this child knew no bounds. Dire circumstances caused Hagar to doubt the promises of God to her, but, but God did not lash out in exasperation or chastise her for her lack of faith. Instead, God calmed her fear and he met her needs and her sons with compassion. He opened her eyes to what desperation had prevented her from seeing, the well of water that was there all along. Verse 20, and God was with the boy, and the boy grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So, so Ishmael's life turns out exactly like God had promised. He grows up, gets married according to Genesis uh, 25. He has 12 sons, just like God promised in Genesis 17. 
according to Genesis 25, he lived in hostility toward all of the, the tribes related to, to him in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 16. Because God always keeps his promises. God, uh, when God says something, you can count on him to be, to be faithful and true. He is sovereign and he is not uh, incapable of bringing his promises to pass. Even in the midst of family drama, even in the midst of sin and folly, right? Even in the midst of the faithlessness of God's people, God is still utterly faithful always to his words. I want to conclude this morning by pointing out two uh, attributes of God, two characteristics of God that we see on display in this story with Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. They're, they're often, it's two characteristics of God that are often conflated, God's grace and God's mercy. Sometimes we use them interchangeably uh, with, without necessarily thinking through the implications and whether they are in fact the same. But there's slightly, there's kind of a different nuance to God's grace and God's mercy. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. So grace means unmerited favor. Right? I'm guilty. I deserve punishment. Uh, I do not deserve goodness or kindness or to be treated well. Grace is when God treats people like that with love, faithfulness, kindness. When God moves towards sinners and forgives them of their sin. When he imputes their sin to his son Jesus. When he punishes Jesus in their place. And when he imputes the righteousness of Christ to them and treats them as if they live the perfect life of Christ. God's grace is on display in this story with these four characters. Because each of them were, in their own respective ways, sinners who were deserving of God's judgment. Abraham, right, uh, receives direct revelation from God about God's plans and promises, and yet he just consistently uh, fails to live up to the righteousness of God. He sends his wife into another man's bedroom. He's slow to believe the promises of God. He's taking shortcuts, cutting corners, calling God's promises into question. He commits adultery on his wife. Abraham was a sinner. Everyone was a guilty sinner deserving of punishment. Sarah laughed at God, didn't believe in God, thought God was stupid, rolled her eyes at God's promises. When God confronted Sarah about this, she lied to his face about it. She orchestrated a situation where Abraham would sleep with Hagar. When it blew up in her face, she blamed other people. She abused Hagar. She pulled rank and kicked Hagar out of her house because she didn't want to share her inheritance with her. Sarah was a guilty sinner deserving of punishment. Hagar tried to push Sarah out and tried to kind of, you know, use her own fertility as a way to leverage and get her, you know, cut Sarah in line and be, have the, the favored position. She didn't trust God to take care of her, right? She tried to scheme and manipulate and force her way to where she wanted to be. She was only a good employee for as long as she felt she had to. And as soon as she thought she had an opening, she, she was a bad employee. She was guilty, deserving of punishment. Ishmael laughed at Isaac, mocked Isaac, persecuted Isaac because he was jealous of him. He wanted to be the favored son like Isaac was. I mean, Isaac, Ishmael was 16 and Isaac was 2. 
pretty low. It's pretty low to, to bully a two-year-old when you're 16. So Ishmael was a sinner deserving of God's judgment and punishment. And yet, in the midst of all their sin and all their folly, God was good to people who were deserving of punishment. He was good to Abraham. He never went back on his word. He never uh, reneged on his covenant. He was good to Sarah and gave her a son. He was good to Hagar. He came and met her in the wilderness twice. He was good to Ishmael and he gave him 12 sons and made him into a great nation. Right, Guilty sinners who deserve punishment. And God was good to them. That's God's grace. God's mercy is similar But it's got a little different nuance. God's grace is God's goodness and loving kindness to sinners who deserve punishment. God's mercy is His goodness and loving kindness toward those who are in misery and in distress. People who are suffering. Right? Not necessarily those who are guilty, but rather those who are are in misery, in distress. People who need relief. This is why... Uh, some churches use the, you know, they, they use the, the phrase mercy ministry to describe, you know, or benevolence ministry because there's someone who's in distress, there's someone who's in need, there's someone who needs help with their bills, or they, what, they have a need, they, they need relief, and we're going to come alongside them. That's mercy. In Second Samuel 24, David says, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Matthew chapter 9, there's two blind men and they're crying out to Jesus and they say, Lord, we're blind, we're suffering, we're in distress. Have mercy on us. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God is the Father of mercy who comforts us in our affliction. So God's gracious when He's good to people who are guilty. God is merciful when He is good to people who are suffering. And God's mercy is on display in this story just like His grace. Because just like these four characters are guilty and deserving of punishment, they're also all suffering in their own respective ways. Abraham is a nomad wandering around. All he has is a tent and mouths to feed. He's too old to feed them. Sarah is an old woman. Her husband's not getting any younger. She has no children. She couldn't have children when she was younger. She can't have them now that she's older. Hagar was a slave. She was owned as property, transferred from one master and owner to another. She runs away and is on the verge of death twice. Ishmael was born into a family with tons of drama. He had to compete every day of his life for the attention and affection of his father. His mother was not even his father's favorite woman. Each of these characters were suffering and in need of relief in their respective ways. And God was kind to each of them. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their despair, in the midst of their misery, God was good to them. He was merciful to them. He revealed himself to Abraham. He gave Sarah the gift of a child. He he met Hagar in the wilderness and took care of her and provided for her. And Ishmael, the son that no one wanted, God met him, took care of him, and made him into a patriarch in his own right. Suffering, in distress, in need of relief, and God was good to them. That's God's mercy. So God's grace is goodness toward those who deserve punishment. God's mercy is goodness toward those who are in misery and distress. And the reality is God is both gracious and merciful. He was gracious and merciful to to Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and to us. In, In Christ... 
God extends both mercy and grace to us. Grace to forgive us of our sin. Mercy to draw near to us in the midst of our despair and our suffering. When our sin is defiled us, Jesus takes it away. When we feel like we've been cast out, overlooked, forgotten, persecuted. When we're suffering, hurting, in despair, Jesus draws near to us. Loves us, takes care of us, and protects us. In Christ, God has shown himself to be both gracious and merciful. And if we turn from our sin and trust in Jesus, then we can experience the fullness both of God's grace and of his mercy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we get to be Christians. That we've been given the gift of repentance and faith. Lord, we acknowledge that we are deserving of punishment and we need your grace. We need your unmerited favor. We need you to treat us better than we deserve. And we also acknowledge, Lord, that apart from you, we are lonely and isolated and and cast out with no hope. And we need your mercy and your compassion. We need you to draw near to us. Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning as our only hope for grace and for mercy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.